understood. I want to share with you an experience that I had this last fall that was, on the one hand, uh, exhilarating, and on the other hand, uh, humiliating. Over about, over about the last year and a half, two years, I have been getting to know this, this uh, retired Hispanic man at the local athletic club that I, I, I'm a part of. Um, every morning that I go there, I see him marching on the treadmill just drenched in sweat, and he, he's come to recognize me, and so he initially just began to nod and kind of give me a smile, just a really neat gentleman. And, and eventually I worked up the courage to introduce myself and said, hey, I'm Dan, and he introduced me to, or he gave me his name and, um, in his broken Spanish. And um, that initial introduction led to some, some chats here and there. And uh, the Lord put it on my heart to start praying for him. It's just one of my, my few contacts with the outside world, of the unbelieving world, to try and see um, how best I can be used of God to, to minister to him. Well, about last fall, um, probably September, October, um, I was in the locker room with him, and, and there he was. And uh, I asked him a simple question, just trying to make conversation. I said, so uh, what are you going to do this weekend? And in his uh, broken, broken English, he says, I'm going to paint my house. That sounds more like a Russian, actually, accent than it does a Spanish accent. But um, I thought, ah, okay, I didn't think anything of it. And, and I grabbed my toothbrush and went over to the sink and started, you know, brushing my teeth. And at that very moment, the Lord spoke to me. Now, as I've said on previous occasions, I have never heard the Lord audibly speak to my ears. But there was a sense in which I knew that the Lord was directing me to do something, and I knew exactly what he wanted me to do. And again, I can't fully explain it. I just knew at that moment the Lord was saying to me, go offer to help him paint his house. Now, at that very moment, I started to argue with that directive for a number of reasons. One, part of it was just fear. You know, people that are just slightly less than strangers usually don't offer to help another person paint their house. So I thought, well, he's probably going to think like I want to get paid or something, so he's going to misunderstand. Or maybe he's going to think, that guy's weird. Like, who does that in our culture? You know, I'd hardly even know you. You're asking to come help paint my house. So I'm arguing with this, this inward directive that I know is from the Lord. Um, and then I, I, the, 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 another alternate argument came to my mind. Do I really have time? This is back when we were doing Saturday night services. Do I really have time to go and help this guy paint his house? So I'm arguing with this, this directive. Well, eventually I lost the argument. That is, the Lord was like, just do this. And so I walked back into the place in the locker room where, where he was, and he was already gone. And uh, I thought, man, I just missed this opportunity and so I, I thought to myself, okay, Lord, I'm a total idiot. Um, tomorrow, if I see him here, I will offer to help him paint his house. So the next day, woke up, got my car and came, and I had this sense that I knew he was going to be there. He, wasn't, he's the, he doesn't show up every day. I just knew because God's hands were so all over this, I, just, I knew. So I walked up the stairs, I looked in, there he is, marching on the treadmill, sweating up a storm. And I said, okay, Lord, just make this natural. So... Uh, we just happened to end up in the locker room at the exact same time, and I asked the question, but it wasn't the right question. I said, so, you have people helping you paint your house? And uh, he said, you know, in his accent, he said, yes, his three boys were coming in. And immediately I let myself off the hook. I thought, ah, he's got plenty of help. I don't need to volunteer. So I got my Bronco and started driving down the road about a mile into it. Again, it's like the Lord, a sense. 
He said, no, he didn't say you're an idiot, but gave me the sense that you didn't ask the question. You didn't volunteer to help him paint his house. So, you know, again, I wrestled. Again, I'm dense, okay? And just part of that's the humiliating part of this. Uh, a, a person of greater courage which had just responded the first time, but I didn't. So eventually I lost that argument too. I did a U-turn, legal, mind you, did a U-turn, went back, and I knew he was going to be in the parking lot that he hadn't left yet. Again, there's just this, like, I know. There's, this is an event in my life. And I pull into the parking lot. He's right there. I roll down the window, and he comes over, smiles at me, and I said, you need some help painting your house because I'd be willing to help. And he got this big, huge grin on his face, and he said, no, my friend. He says, that's okay. So I thought at that minute, that burden, that directive was fulfilled, and I felt released. So I started driving away, but I felt totally confused. Like, what was the point of that? Like, you, I wrestled with that while brushing my teeth and then wrestled in the car, did the U-turn, come back, and he doesn't need my help. Uh, but it became clearer um, in the weeks that followed because in a short time after that, he came up to me and he handed me this little invitation to his grandson's baptism. Um, that apparently it opened enough of a door to say that I cared about him that, that he invited me to his grandson's baptism. He's a, he's a Catholic. Um, and then he gave me his home address. And then he told me, he says, you need to come over and eat my wife's Mexican cooking. And all of that came out of a simple question that the Lord put on me that I needed to ask. Namely, can I help you paint your house? Now, for me, it was an exhilarating, exciting thing because in those very moments, the Spirit of God, in a very tangible way, was guiding in a specific way how to do what he's commanded us in a general way, namely to love our neighbor as ourself. Um, so it's exciting to see the Spirit work in those moments, even though I was a buffoon in the process. Now, that experience raises an important question for us. And that is, does God communicate in these ways? Does God speak to us in ways that are in line with but outside the explicit statements of Scripture. I mean, there's nowhere in Scripture that says, Thou shalt help thy neighbor paint his house. There, there, is, there are commands to love, but does God communicate in ways that lie outside the explicit statements of Scripture, yet clearly in line with it? Some would say, emphatically and some violently, no. God does not communicate in that way today. Whatever you experienced was some kind of subjective Luke, others would say, it does happen today and God does communicate to his people today. Kind of two sides of the fence. Which brings us to the main topic of this particular message and the main concern of this particular passage. Um, in one sense, it's the main concern. He's concerned about prophecy. And that is the topic of, of New Testament prophecy, the prophetic gift, the gift of uh, prophecy as you, you see here. Um, Paul is going to talk about it. It takes up a, a good portion of this entire chapter. And the question is, what is it? Um, how do we define it? So with that being the central question, that really is the question I'd like to answer and explore with you this morning. What is this New Testament gift of prophecy? Um, and how do, we, how do we practice it? With that said, let me just read to you the first 12 verses, and I have them on overhead uh, behind me. Um, let me read the passage and then kind of summarize it and then come back to the main question. 
Paul writes this. He's just finished the great chapter on the supremacy and the permanency and the character and the necessity of love. He now transitions into the gifts. He says, follow the way of love. That's the most important thing. And eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. You see here how love is connected with gifts. Gifts are a means of expressing it can love for your brothers and sisters by using them for their benefit. Continuing on, he says, especially the gift of prophecy. So he's saying, desire it, eagerly desire the gifts, but especially this one, the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. We'll come back to tongues next week. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit, but everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. You get the sense that he clearly values one over the other. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers, if I come to you and, and speak in tongues, what good will it do you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker and he is a foreigner to me, so it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. Now, we are not in a situation like they were. Apparently, there was chaos Lack of order in the congregation. People speaking over one another. People speaking in tongues that no one else knew. So there was a sense of confusion. So he's addressing them and talking about the greater value of the intelligible gift versus the unintelligible. Um, that tongues, that is speaking in foreign languages without an interpretation, leaves everyone mentally and intellectually idle. If someone stood up right now and spoke a, a brilliant message in Sanskrit or Swahili, um, and we didn't know the language, we'd all sit here mentally idle. And that's his point, is that what makes prophecy of greater benefit to the corporate body is that it is intelligible. That's why he values the one in the corporate context over the other. So he values prophecy, which is why he says at the beginning, eagerly desire the gifts, but especially this one, because it has a special um, benefit to the whole body, not just oneself. And as we just learned in the chapter on love, that love does not seek its own. So in the pursuit of spiritual gifts in the corporate body, the ones that are intelligible, that communicate, um, that people are able to take away an understanding of, are of greater worth and value. Now that's kind of the essence of what he just said here. But it doesn't answer the question, what is the gift of prophecy? What is it? How do we define it? That he does not address explicitly in this chapter, which I think causes us to look elsewhere. What is this gift? Now, let me just say that it seems to me, based upon the fact that the gift of prophecy is mentioned in every one of Paul's listing of gifts. He mentions it twice in 1 Corinthians 12 in both lists at the beginning and the end. He lists it as the first in Romans chapter 12, and he includes it in Ephesians chapter 4. In other words, in all of the lists of gifts, 
The gift of prophecy is included. Not only is it included, but it is almost, is almost at the head of the list suggesting it's of vital importance to the church. Underscoring, again, why we're taking a, a, a message time to just explore this. What is this gift of prophecy? What is it? How do we define it? Now, one side in the school that I grew up in, um, or should I say the circles, and then the school that I did my undergraduate in, um, the answer was something like this, that the gift of prophecy, and by the way, let me just back up and say that there is obviously controversy surrounding how one defines it. It's, an, it's not a controversy in terms of believing that the gift continues. Most Christians that I know on both sides of the fence believe that the gift of prophecy continues, that it did not cease. The controversy surrounds how one defines it. So in the circles I grew up in and in the schooling that I initially went through, the answer was the gift of prophecy is essentially applying biblical truth to a particular situation or a particular sin, usually in a confrontational tone. In that way, it varies very little from preaching. I'm preaching is the taking of biblical truth and applying it to specific issues, situations, or contexts. So some would say that the gift of prophecy and the gift of preaching are almost synonymous. That's, that's one way of explaining this particular gift of prophecy. But then there's another group on the other side of the fence that finds it very differently, and that's where the controversy lies. And at the head of that particular pack of people is a scholar by the name of Wayne Crudum. Um, many of you have read his systematic theology, or have read portions of it at least. Um, what makes him kind of the head of, of, of this particular definition is he spent his, his entire dissertation in Cambridge um, exploring, analyzing, and then concluding what the gift of prophecy in the New Testament was. And other scholars have affirmed his work, like Carson and, uh, let's see, Storms, um, Jack Deere, so forth. Anyway, but, but Grudem is the one who, who has defined it differently. And there have been others before him, but he just gave it greater clarity and, of course, kind of a scholarly um, frame of reference. And he boiled it down to this. This is the other side. That the gift of prophecy, this is a single sentence, is telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Now the definition, every word in that definition is important. It's telling, which means it's a message. Telling somebody, it's a conveyance of a message to another person or a group of people, something that God has, and has the key word, spontaneously. In other words, it bypasses the normal means of observation, learning, and study, all of which are good and are commanded in the Scripture, but in this particular gift, it is a spontaneous message that God has brought to the mind of a person who has this particular gift. In other words, he's asserting that this is a revelatory gift. God will bring a message to your mind, could be in a form of a picture, as in, perhaps, if this is prophecy, um, in Acts, when Paul sees a Macedonian man saying, come over. Or it could come in the form of words, which you find in the book of Acts as well. But it is a revelatory gift, according to Grudem. And I personally am convinced that he is right. Now, I realize that puts me at odds with some of my cessationist brothers. I hope, if you happen to be one of them, that you'll recognize that this shouldn't be a divisive issue and that we can still play together. Um, the main objection that I have heard and I have used in times past to this idea 
that God still communicates through the prophetic gift to His people is that if God is still communicating and words and messages are still being spontaneously given to the minds of people and spoken out, then why don't we just record them and add them to the Scripture? Which is, I think in everyone's mind, a dangerous thing. The whole fiasco with David Koresh in, in Waco, Texas that left people damaged and dead um, is, uh, speaks well enough to the danger of elevating any prophetic gift up to the, to the infallible authority of Scripture. Why do I sound so strange? Not a prophetic gift going on here right now. Uh, let's see, where was I at? Um, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. But I think, I really appreciate that. I don't have any notes up here. Um, I think as I have come to understand little parts of Scripture and the evidence that, that Grudem alludes to, and I, by the way, if you, if you disagree with this or you want to explore it more, I'd recommend you simply read chapter 53 of a systematic theology. That's a condensed version. And then if you want the full, the big enchilada, you know, he rewrote his dissertation in kind of a readable form, and you can order it on Amazon. Um, the title is The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament Today. And that is probably the biggest work you're going to find out there um, done by a scholar. At any rate, um, here we are back to the David Koresh. Is it, is it, is it fails to recognize the difference between the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament counterparts who were the apostles, who spoke with absolute, divine, infallible authority versus the New Testament gift of tongues, which it seems from the evidence did not have or speak with that kind of absolute, infallible authority. In other words, there is a difference, a clear difference in the layering of authority between and revelation authority between prophets' apostles versus the gift of the New Testament prophets. And there are several bits of evidence that would lead one to believe that, that what, happens in, what happened in the New Testament church and the, the gift of prophecy today was, if you will, a lower order of revelation. Now let me point you to a couple pieces of that, that evidence. Um, just, again, if you want the technical stuff, you're going to have to read the book because it would fly over most people's heads. Um, one little bit of evidence is the fact that Paul, um, in several places, he exhorts and encourages God's people in the church to test the words, giving the implication or the inference that there is or may be potentially mistakes in this New Testament gift of prophecy. So, for example, he encourages the Corinthian believers in chapter 5, verse 19, Corinthian Thessalonian believers in 5.19, says, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything, i.e. the prophetic words, and hold on to the good. An Old Testament prophet, it would be very different. Once the Old Testament prophet was approved by God and, and uh, shown to be a prophet, um, they, they couldn't just hold on to the good and let go of the bad, and that's clearly what it says here. But in the New Testament prophetic gift, he's saying, listen, test it all and evaluate it. Presumably, in light of the Gospel, the words of Jesus and the words of the apostles, and whatever's good in it, take. It's like that proverb, you know? Eat the fish, spit out the bones. You have to hear the prophetic word, test it, and whatever is good, hold on to it. Giving the sense that there could be inaccuracies. 
um, variations of quality. He also says the same basic thing in 1 Corinthians 14, our particular chapter, verse 29, where he said, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So there's this constant weighing that's going on and, and approving and whatever's good is, is held on to and whatever's bad is, is not held on to. Um, the Old Testament prophet wasn't given that kind of latitude. Everything he said must be true. Now that is further supported by a second bit of evidence, namely how the gift of prophecy functions in the book of Acts. And I have listed that on the computer as well. You have at various points in the book of Acts this prophetic gift coming to light. One particular prominent prophet whose voice is heard is the prophet by the name of Agabus. We find him speaking two different times in the book of Acts, but the most um, helpful one is found in Acts chapter 21, verse 10, where here is this, he's not an apostle, doesn't carry the authority of apostle, but nevertheless he stands up. He has this ministry of prophecy. Apparently he is recognized, it's been tested, he knows, they know, hey, this guy has a reputation for being on the mark, at least most of the time. So in Acts chapter 21, verse 10, we read, after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came from Judea, came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now just pay really close attention to what he says. He's indicating that the Spirit of God has given him a particular message. In this case, it's predictive. Not all prophecy is. In fact, most of the time it doesn't seem that it is. But in this case, obviously, he's speaking about a future uh, moment where Paul at this, is, is going to be going to Jerusalem and he is going to be taken and he is going to be persecuted. So he's saying, bad times are coming for you, Paul, the owner of this belt, and he ties himself up. But notice very carefully that he says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt. So the Jews are going to do the binding and then deliver them over to the Gentiles. But in the same chapter where we read the words of this prophetic uh, message, it turns out a bit differently than he prophesied. So we have in Acts chapter 21, verse 33, the fulfillment of this particular prophetic word, and we read that the commander, now the commander in the context is the Roman commander. Um, he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. This Gentile Roman commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains by his Roman guards. I don't believe that an Old Testament prophet would get away with that kind of inaccuracy. In essence, the heart of the prophecy was correct. Namely, that Paul was going to be bound up and persecuted. He got that part right, but the details of who was going to do the binding was inaccurate. Yet he wasn't stoned for it, as an Old Testament prophet would be. He got the heart of it right, but he got the details wrong. It was the Gentiles that bound him um, and delivered him over. So there are examples, that one in particular, where the prophetic gift was clearly a spontaneous message that he was supposed to deliver to Paul. He delivered it to Paul. Um, the essence of it, the heart of it was right, but the details were wrong. Which is why... I think Paul would say, listen, you've got to test this stuff and weigh this stuff. Recognize that the prophet is not speaking with the kind of Old Testament ultimate infallible authority. So it needs to be weighed. So those are the kind of two pieces of, of, of evidence. Um, there is more. If you want the more, you're going to have to read the book. 
but basically that it needed to be tested, implying that it, it, it may have imperfect qualities. And secondly, we find even the examples in, in the book of Acts of, of there being an imperfect um, type of prophetic word or prophetic message. Now, at this point, it might be helpful um, because I realize what I'm saying is potentially dangerous. It might be helpful for me to, to just give you what helps me, namely that there are layers of authority in terms of revelation. Um, and I think it's biblical, it's in the scripture, that many times when we think of biblical revelation, we think one-dimensionally. Um, I shouldn't say biblical revelation, I should say revelation as a whole. But it has different dimensions to it, different layers to it. At the very top of what we will call a hierarchy of, of revelation, uh, divine revelation, of course, is Jesus. He's, he's a revelation of who God is in a way that is, is, is not captured in ink and pages. And as we're told in Hebrews 1, the passage that was read earlier, that um, in former times, you know, the Lord spoke through prophets in various ways and various times, but now He speaks in flesh, like in the Son, and that Jesus is the radiant glory of the Father. He is the ultimate revelation of who God is. He is ultimate, perfect, infallible. That is the greatest revelation we have. But He's not here. But we do have a witness to him and an infallible witness, which brings us to the second layer. Notice the first layer is just capital R, capital E, capital V. And that is the second layer is the Scripture itself, which is God's witness to Christ. Old Testament looks forward to him, anticipates him. New Testament explains him. He's at the center of it. But it is, in the words of Jesus and the New Testament, it is the infallible witness um, and it's comprised largely of Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles uh, they, that must be obeyed. So Scripture itself is an infallible revelation that witnesses to Christ, who is the revelation. And Scripture is and must be obeyed. It must form our mind. It declares what's true. Um, there is nothing wrong or mistaken about it. But then there is this third layer of revelation to which I think um, the gift of prophecy would belong. I think perhaps God's revelation in creation as well because we can so easily distort it and get it wrong. Um, but it is potentially fallible. I said potentially. It varies in quality. Example is Agabus in uh, Acts chapter 21. Um, and it must be tested. Unlike Scripture, which it must be obeyed. You don't have to test Scripture. There's nothing to test it by. It is self-authenticating. Um, the Spirit is the one who... who, who, who authenticates the Scripture. So it's this lower order of revelation that I think the, the gift of prophecy uh, belongs to. That said, it is subject to the supreme authority of Scripture and ultimately to Christ. That any professed or believed word from somebody or message that God spontaneously brings to mind that does not move in the direction of the supremacy of Jesus or is not consistent with the infallible Word of God, namely the Bible, is not a word from the Lord. And this, I, I, this kind of hierarchy, I think, keeps us on track. Prevents us from going off course, because at the center of it is Christ. Um, at the ground of it is the Scripture, and um, it provides the framework in which um, it should be, um, should be practiced. But that doesn't mean, and here's and the last thing I'll, I'll say about it before I just give some encouragement here. Um, it must be tested. Secondly, it seems that it, it does have imperfect qualities. It is fallible, according to Acts. 
But that doesn't mean it's not helpful or beneficial to the body. Coming back to the 1 Corinthians 14 passage, we find that it has a tremendous potential for effect and actually helping people. There in 1 Corinthians 14, I'm going to begin in verse 24, he's, he's talking about, again, the chaos. That's the chaos that's going on in the church. People are speaking in different languages. People don't understand. People are trying to talk over each other. And he basically says, listen, uh, tongues in a corporate environment isn't all that helpful. But prophecy, look what happens if someone prophesies, especially if an unbeliever comes in. You know, if he comes into a place where everybody's shouting at each other, speaking different languages, he's going to think we're insane. But, he says, but if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes, while everybody is prophesying, that is, there's understanding, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. I think the underlying logic of what he says here is that he comes in and people are prophesying. And what they're doing is God is bringing things spontaneously to mind that aren't um, products of or derived from the ordinary process of observation, learning, and study. And in the process of God bringing spontaneously to mind these messages, the man's life is laid bare and secrets are revealed. Which he, it's like the woman at the well in John chapter 4 when, when, when Jesus comes to her and she goes, you know, um, uh, he says, hey, you know, you know, you've been married four times and the one you're with now is not your husband. She goes, I think you're a prophet. Because there's only one way that he could have known that. Divine revelation or the fact that he was God. In the same case here, Paul envisions a man coming in and, and secrets are revealed that nobody else would know. And there's only one explanation. That God revealed it to that prophetic gift. And spoke it. And as a result, he falls down, worships God, saying, He's really here. A few weeks ago, maybe it was a a month, month and a half ago, where I referenced uh, Charles Spurgeon, read a little bit from his autobiography. Actually, Sam Storms is the one who quotes it extensively. uh, Where Spurgeon, in the middle of a a message, would stop, and he'd call somebody out in the congregation and reveal something about their life that he had no prior knowledge of. And in the one case that I read, the man came to faith because there was only one explanation for that. That is, God was there. Now, Spurgeon didn't call it the gift of prophecy, but I think it probably was. Whatever we call it, it was a spontaneous bringing to mind of a message he needed to convey. And people were converted. And people will sense that God is really among you. That's one of the great things about this prophetic gift is the realization that God is really here. So, I know this is a lot to chew on. What is this gift of prophecy? Is it just to be equated with preaching? I just don't think that bears up under the evidence of the New Testament. That it is to be tested. We see an example, a pretty potent example, of someone who gets the heart of it right, but doesn't get the details right. And of course, we see some of the potential for people realizing that God is, is here through that particular gift. So if, at this point, you need a lot more time to figure out what you believe on this, then Godspeed, and I hope that you will search it out for yourself. If, however, you're a person who is convinced that, you know what, God does move in ways, and he communicates in ways that are, in, um, that are consistent with, but in terms of explicitness and specificity outside the specific statements of Scripture, 
And let me just offer some words of encouragement, caution, and just a reflection. In terms of encouragement, if you believe that God does this, and some of you, I know, because I've taken a bunch of Edwards groups through these chapters, have expressed that, you know, God has done things like that, like brought things to mind, and I called somebody at that time and found out that exactly what they needed to hear. If that's something you believe God does do, and he did it in Paul's day, seems like he did it in Spurgeon's day, I've heard reports of it happening in our day, then don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of what people think. I know there's a skepticism out there that that suspects anything subjective, and I, I suppose there's no way to totally overcome that. But don't be afraid of it. You never know if what God has given you to say to somebody else isn't something that they've prayed for for a long time and how much it would minister to them if they, if they heard you say it and encourage you to be sensitive to the things God brings to mind. If you sense that it's not from you, it's from someplace else and it's moving in the direction of the supremacy of Jesus and it's, it's um, consistent with the infallible scriptures, namely the Bible, then call somebody up or, or, or talk to them and watch what happens. I, there's no telling what kind of fruit would come of this. So don't be afraid of it. Now, is it dangerous? Can it be dangerous? Well, of course. I mean, some of my cessationist brothers would tell me, Dan, that's a dangerous line you're walking to say that God communicates in ways outside the bounds of Scripture. I recognize that. But just because something's dangerous doesn't mean we shouldn't use it. Electricity is dangerous, but we still use it. Uh, Money is dangerous to the soul, but we still use it. You know, the practice of medicine is dangerous. But we still have doctors. Sure, the prophetic gift can be abused and has been abused. But to use a line from Sam Storms, the answer to abuse is not disuse, but careful, spirit-guided, scripturally appropriate use. So I just encourage you as a congregation, it's one of the ways that we can manifest the love of God to each other is when God does give you something for somebody else, act on it. But on the other side, I also think it would be wrong not to, not to give some caution. Because I have seen the gift in operation in ways that are damaging and ways that are helpful. You know, it's, a, it's important to keep chapter 14 in light, or chapter 13 in mind when one reads chapter 14. Namely, that the prophetic gift is not to draw attention to oneself, nor to seek one's own. I have seen it exercised in ways that drawn attention to somebody, and I don't know that it was sincere. It certainly wasn't humble, and it caused damage. But I've also seen, and this has actually happened in this congregation, someone came up to me, had something that they needed to say, said, and it was right on, something they couldn't have known, and they spoke, trembling, and in tears. It's, it's, it's not an attention-drawing thing. It's like, Lord, I believe the Lord wants me to say something to you, and this is what it is. What you do with it, what it means, I don't know exactly, but, but here's what it is. And then I also think on the flip side that there is a testing that each of us needs to do. Someone comes up to me and says, Dan, i got a word. You're supposed to leave Parkway. I'd say, well, I'll log that away, and I'll see if the Spirit affirms that And if other people affirm that, then, of course, after being tested, maybe I'll do it. We just don't simply take things um, 
verbatim. It needs to be tested. It needs to be weighed humbly and so forth. And I still think, I believe, that the Spirit of God authenticates something. It's like he, when someone gives a word, the person who's receiving it, if it is a true word, will already have the sense that God's working in that direction in their life. And they're like, yes, I needed to hear that. Um, so that's just a, a, a word of caution. And most importantly um, is making sure that the main thing seems, stays the main thing in the church. That at no time should a gift, as wonderful as it might be, displace the centrality of Scripture from the church. Um, that it should be poured into us. There's nothing more trustworthy than the, than the Bible. Um, and that we should constantly be moving in the same direction of, of learning about and submitting to the supremacy of who Jesus is. All the gifts are, are to move in that particular direction. So, because you can't easily get excited about something that is a means to an end and then it becomes an idol in life or a church. It's keeping the Scripture central to the heart and, and the revelation of God's Word, which is our only infallible Word, um, and to keep our direction moving in the direction of, of the supremacy of, of Jesus. It's just words of caution. I want to encourage you to, to follow those things and to watch the Lord move. I think it's an amazing thing, but at the same time to be careful, cautious, humble, and of course ultimately biblical and Christ-centered. And then the last is just, just a, revel, a, a reflection. Let me just tell you what excites me about this particular gift. If it really is, the fact that God brings something for you to say spontaneously to your mind. What excites me about it isn't so much the gift, but what it says about the presence of God. What it says is exactly what's, or what it says to me and what is experienced when this gift is alive and used is that God is really among you. That he hears that he's not far off, but he's here, responding to prayers, caring for the details of one's life, that he provides direction when you've been praying for it, and God brings somebody else to say, hey, I have something for you that I, I think is from the Lord, test it. And then you realize, that's just what I needed. The real, realization that, that God is here. He's involved dynamically in the life of his body, that the Spirit of God is not some simply abstract logic that we're supposed to live by, but he is taking his word and he's taking the gifts and he's communicating himself to us. As I've repeated over and over again, what's great about the gifts isn't the gifts, it's the God who is in the gifts, in the spirit and the presence of him that's communicated through them. Which is why for me, this particular gift is so um, wonderful. It tells the church, tells you, tells me, God is here and he is at work and he is answering prayers. And he is meeting the, the specific needs of his people. And this gift is one way in particular that God, God does that. So if you happen to be someone who's, well, even if you don't have a gift, but if you have that gift and you suspect you have that gift, I'd encourage you to d desire it, develop it, and use it. Just use it carefully because um, it will really help our congregation. If you don't have it, you can always pray for it. Um, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, he says. Um, nothing wrong with asking. Let me uh, just close us with uh, uh, just asking you, first of all, pray for uh, enlightenment. That you will be convinced one way or the other at some point what this gift of prophecy is. So pray for clarification. But also pray for the courage to cry out for and eagerly desire everything that God's given to us as a church and not to be afraid of it. So will you pray um, with me 
as a congregation that God would fill us with every good gift and we would eagerly desire and pray for whatever He has for us um, for the glory of His Son and, and, of course, for the health of the body. So spend a few moments crying out to the Lord and, and eagerly desiring these gifts and this one in particular in prayer.